Why does one trade association for qualified opportunity funds want more data collection and reporting? And could the Opportunity Zone program be renewed at some point in the future? Find out next. Welcome to another exciting episode of the Opportunity Zones podcast, the weekly show where we interview Opportunity Zones professionals and experts from fund managers to tax advisors, from real estate developers to venture capitalists. If it impacts Opportunity Zones or the Opportunity Funds industry, we cover it here on the Opportunity Zones podcast. Welcome to the Opportunity Zones podcast. I'm your host, Jimmy Atkinson. When the Opportunity Zones legislation was first introduced to the Senate in February 2017, it was co-sponsored by Senator Tim Scott, a Republican from South Carolina, and Senator Cory Booker, a Democrat from New Jersey. Joining me on the show today is Senator Scott's former tax advisor, Shay Hawkins. Shay was instrumental in getting the Opportunity Zones legislation passed by Congress and also lended his voice to Treasury's regulatory efforts. He left Senator Scott's office earlier this year to establish the Opportunity Fund Association, a trade group for qualified opportunity funds. Shay joins us today from his office in Washington, D.C. Shay, thanks for coming on the podcast and welcome. Uh, Thanks, Jimmy. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Absolutely. I'm excited. Looking forward to speaking with you. Quite the intro I gave you. And I really want to drive home this point. I want to make sure that we're not understating your importance to the Opportunity Zones tax policy. I recently heard someone on your team make the analogy that Senator Scott may be the Bill Belichick of Opportunity Zones, but you are the Tom Brady. Senator Scott was the one (laughs) calling the plays, but you were the one actually running the plays on the field and making sure that this policy not only got passed, but then was interpreted correctly by Treasury. Is that a fair thing to say? Uh, I I, I think that's fair. It's funny to hear, but it it was really great to be uh, on Capitol Hill at this time and to be working closely with Senator Scott during this process. Uh, I'm not a, you know, a longtime Capitol Hill staffer. You know, my background is investment banking, but I, I, I was I was on the Hill at the right time and 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 working with the right member and somebody who was really central to the process in tax reform and who had a great policy in the Investing in Opportunity Act that we were able to draft a version that could fit into the tax reform framework, you know, and get it across the finish line. So it was a pleasure. One of the most, one of the most exciting experiences that I've had on Capitol Hill and definitely one of the most exciting experiences in my career. I'm sure. Okay. Can you tell my listeners and I a little bit more about that story? How did you get that piece of legislation across the finish line, and what were some of the biggest challenges that you faced? Sure, sure. As you know, the the Opportunity Zones provision in tax reform is based on a bipartisan, bicameral bill uh, called the Investing in Opportunity Act uh, that was actually introduced not just in the 115th Congress, but it was introduced in the 114th as well. And again, you know, key, key co-sponsors of the Investing in Opportunity Act uh, on the Senate side were uh, my old boss, Senator Tim Scott, and then Senator Cory Booker from New Jersey on the Democratic side. And then on the House side, you had Congressman Pat T. Berry. You could look at him as sort of the Republican version, I mean, the House side version of Tim Scott. And then you had uh, Representative Ron Kind as well. Uh, and so beyond that, on the House side, 88 co-sponsors and 15 Senate co-sponsors 
on that bill. And so, you know, the real challenge was taking that uh, that bipartisan bill and finding a version that could work in, in the tax reform process, which required reconciliation, which means that there's only so much uh, you can add in terms of debt, and that amount is decided upon ahead of time. And so you really have to now take take a bill that had bipartisan agreement, but really put it in the vehicle of the day, uh, which is which is the case with any bill. Uh, it's very, very rare that a bill uh, passes as a standalone. So whether it be a continuing resolution or a tax reform bill or an appropriations bill or what have you, uh, you're always going to have to find that vehicle. And with this being fundamentally a tax bill, uh, tax reform is the right vehicle. Good. And what were some of the biggest challenges in getting it across the finish line? Uh, was, and was there any pushback from from senators, other congressmen who may have championed the new markets tax credit program and other tax credits who who may have resisted this bill at first if they didn't quite sure. understand how it, how it all fit into the tax policy? Right. And, and, and so, you know, the, the, the reality, um, I, I, I'll start with the reality and go with the you know, and then deal with some of their perceptions. The reality is that um, opportunity zones are, in many ways, highly complementary with with existing policies such as the New Market Tax Credit Program, uh, LIHTC, uh, Low Income Housing Tax Credit Program, and others. Most of those programs focus on debt. Uh, opportunity zones focus on equity. Those programs have a cap in terms of the total amount available, whereas opportunity zones, the amount available is really unlimited when, you, when you're looking at private sector capital. Those programs can be implemented really, you know, really anywhere, whereas opportunity zones have certain, you know, kind of geographic limitations. And so, you know, they're really complementary. Uh, but, in, but in the process, there were folks who felt that opportunity zones would act as a replacement for, um, you know, for, for some existing, um, you know, for some existing programs. And so one, you know, Opportunity Zones is, while complementary, very different, um, you know, but two, that wasn't the, um, that wasn't the intent of folks like Senator Scott who were moving this forward. They, they see, he sees those two as complementary. But that perception created a little bit of pushback early on before folks were fully educated. You know, and because it's a political process, there are always going to be people involved who, who would have liked to possibly uh, use Opportunity Zones as a replacement for some existing programs. And so um, that, that process can kind of, can kind of help aid that, that uh, pushback. But, uh, but my old boss and myself on the staff level and some of our outside stakeholders really worked hard, you know, to educate folks across the Hill and in the White House and in the in the, that outside stakeholder community. And even amongst those those who are proponents of uh, new markets and LIHTC to really help them understand the, uh, you know, the potentially complementary nature of Opportunity Zones. Yeah, the Opportunity Zones program not meant to replace those former tax credits, but in many ways can work with them to... And then to help, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And a lot of investors are using them together. 
Uh, yes, absolutely. Uh, Shay, I want to back up for a second here and get a little bit of your personal story. Can you tell us a little bit more about yourself and how you got your start? And uh, basically, sure. tell me the story about uh, how you got to where you are today. Yeah, sure, sure, sure. So, you know, I, I you know, have really benefit from the free enterprise system all throughout my, you know, all throughout my career. Um, I did my undergrad at Ohio State in economics, uh, came out to, um, to New York to work in finance, um, worked for two and a half years, had an investment bank, uh, and ended up uh, getting a full fellowship to Columbia Business School by that same investment bank. So saved me a, a ton of Columbia. Ultimately, went back into investment banking after business school, focusing on um, sell-side mergers and acquisitions for technology, media, and telecom companies. And so, you know, all during that time, I was really able to earn and save and give in ways that I never would have thought possible back when I was an undergrad at Ohio State. So, you know, got so much from this, uh, from this free enterprise system. Uh, and so appreciative of it. And so um, the investment bank that I was at was not, although uh, relatively small, was not unaffected by the uh, financial crisis. And so I, I, I sat in my mind at that point that I was going to take some of my uh, educational background, some of my experience in finance, and give that, uh, give that back, as it were, to help preserve our free enterprise system that had like that had given me so much and provided so much opportunity for me, uh, and so I set my mind to uh, to try to get myself involved in um, in government at least for some time, and so uh, you know got back to Ohio State, I got myself into law school, and after law school ended up coming to uh, D.C. to work on a tax fellowship. Uh, in Congressman Jim Renacci's office. He's a Cleveland area congressman, um, and I am from the Cleveland area. And so Congressman Renacci had his own tax plan, and he was advancing his tax plan uh, against the House blueprint and, at the time, the president's proposal. Uh, So I was assisting Congressman Renacci and the tax counsels that he had working in his office uh, in advancing his plan. And so around May of 2017, uh, Senator Scott was pulling his team together. He knew at that time that he was going to be a critical part of the tax reform effort. And so in May of 2017, Senator Scott brought me over to join his team. And, uh, you know, we really hit the ground running over there. And I was able to, uh, you know, to advise him Throughout the tax reform process, I handled uh, Senator Scott's entire uh, finance committee portfolio, uh, which would have, would have included uh, tax, but also trade and pensions. And so given that he was a conferee uh, and one of the key drafters for the Senate side bill, which really led the process and, you know, on, on a lot of what became the ultimate bill. Um, and, and again, he was a conferee, which is just to say that he was part of a smaller team that helped reconcile the House bill and the Senate bill, ultimately. Um, and so, and again, advised him through that entire process. 
And so where we are now, you know, in terms of my uh, presidency of the Opportunity Funds Association, you know, what I looked at this association as is a platform to continue to promote opportunity zones, you know, to, to, to promote uh, good behavior in the zones and have this great, great policy be ultimately, you know, extended and expanded so that more folks in distressed communities can benefit from private sector capital. So it's, um, you know, it, it's, it's been a great run, but it ultimately is on the same theme. Um, you know, I feel blessed, uh, you know, to be uh, living and working in a free enterprise system. And, uh, you know, I'm doing whatever I can to both preserve that system, but also to expand it and make sure that people in all uh, in all aspects of our society and at all levels can participate. Right on. Yeah, and I'll ask you a little bit more about the Opportunity Fund Association here in a few minutes. Uh, but sure. you're, it's, it's interesting that you praise the free enterprise system as much as you do. This Opportunity Zones tax policy, it's, it's a federal tax initiative, but it's very much a free enterprise system. It's largely free of oversight from the federal government it's regulated by the federal government, but there's no pre-approval process. There's no really centralized authority that you have to go through. The funds can self-certify, and there's a little bit of a tension there, I guess, um, because on the one hand, I like that it's a free enterprise system. I like that it's largely being driven by, by the free market system, and and there's very little oversight. But on the other hand, you do want to make sure that the program's working and you want some level of accountability and, and reporting. The original piece of Opportunity Loans legislation that was introduced to Congress was titled the Investing in Opportunity Act, and it gave Treasury a reporting mandate. But by the time that the policy was passed as part of the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act in December of 2017, that mandate yes. was removed. Can you tell me what happened there exactly and, and why that was removed? Sure. Sure, absolutely. And so, um, you know, again, our, our challenge in in drafting language based on the Investing in Opportunity Act and making that the Opportunity Zones Provision and Tax Reform, the challenge there was the reconciliation vehicle that we were using, you know, you know, to pass tax reform. One key aspect of the reconciliation vehicle, you know, it's technically called budget reconciliation. And what that means is that basically the tool uh, requires that everything associated with the process um, and and any policy that's passed um, within the bill has to be directly budget related, has to have a budget impact. And so if there's a provision that doesn't have a budget impact or, you know, adds to or subtracts from the budget, then it can be removed based on what's called the Byrd Rule. It's a rule that's, uh, that's, that's named after a former senator from West Virginia, Senator Byrd. And, you know, this rule basically says that, hey, if anything that's, that has no budget impact is presented in in a bill, uh, then it can be removed and everything associated with it. 
Uh, and th- and that's that's removed either on the Senate floor uh, as things are being as the bill is being passed, or it can be evaluated by a parliamentarian ahead of time. And people who are against the bill can uh, lay out the things they plan on challenging, and it will give the people um, in the majority who support the bill a chance to just remove things rather than have them challenged on the floor. And so we put the Investing and Opportunity Act reporting requirements in whole. You know, we added those in, and so those were part of my drafting. Uh, but unfortunately, it became clear that those reporting requirements were going to be challenged. Um, and so rather than risk the entire Opportunity Zones provision, we removed those reporting requirements. And we had to just hope that there would be bipartisan support for adding those reporting requirements back in uh, later. Uh, and again, we were uh, we were definitely happy to see uh, Senate Bill 1344, which which adds those reporting requirements back passed. Um, but but at the time, uh, we couldn't risk the entire provision uh, because those were going to be challenged. Right. Yeah. It, those reporting that reporting mandate could have potentially jeopardized the entire program. So I can understand why you proactively removed that part of the statute right. from the from the provision. So before yeah, you... I mean, in, 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 a, in a perfect world, you know, some, somebody from the minority would have just said, hey, can you guys let this one slide? But it's, uh, it's not a perfect world. <laughs> and you had some people on the other side challenge who threatened to challenge the the bill otherwise is that is that right correct? yeah 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 it was clear that they were going to challenge that portion of the bill good um before you left senator scott's office and you just referenced this a minute ago you helped author senate bill 1344 which restores that reporting mandate it's it's uh it was introduced to the senate floor last month can you tell me a little bit more about that bill and when do you think we can expect a vote on it Sure. So, so essentially, what Senate Bill thirteen forty four does it's it's a, it's a bill we worked on uh, closely with Senator Booker's office. So it was a big priority for both uh, Senator Scott and Senator Booker. You know, basically, what it requires um, it requires very basic information uh, to be collected by Treasury from funds, and it requires funds to give very basic information uh, to Treasury. So it's not anything that would jeopardize, you know, a competitive advantage or anything like that. It's just basic information that any any fund manager should know, uh, and they should know off the top of their head. So these are things that could literally be checkboxes. Basic information about, you know, how much capital is invested in opportunity zones, uh, what zones the fund has investments in, Broad categories regarding the type of investments, so real estate, property, operating business. You know, within the operating businesses, we could be looking at information on the sick code level. And then the amount of direct jobs created, you know. And so, you know, whether you're running uh, a multi, you know, a multi-million dollar fund um, that's investing all across the country or whether it's, three individuals that got their money together to invest in a, in a uh, restaurant franchise, uh, they should know this information. It should be, you know, knowable 
and uh, and ascertainable and reportable. And so it's it, it it's a bill that restores what we had, uh, goes a little further, but then also is not so onerous that it keeps capital out of the market. It's, so it's critical that the reporting requirements aren't so onerous that if you're not a fund that's large enough to hire large numbers of accountants and lawyers, you won't be able to participate in reporting and therefore comply. Uh, so we want it to be information that's valuable and useful in evaluating the effectiveness of the policy down the road, uh, but but not so onerous that it keeps uh, investors out of the market, small investors. And then Treasury would be responsible for releasing this data annually, and they would also submit a report to Congress on the effectiveness of the program, uh, I believe five years after the law is passed. Is, is that correct? Right, right, right. Because Treasury needs, uh, uh, you know, Congress needs to understand how effective, you know, according to congressional intent, that the policy that the policy is. So if there's adjustments that need to be made, then those adjustments can be made. And if we see, uh, which is what we expect, that the policy is bringing uh, large amounts of capital into distressed communities and that that capital is benefiting existing residents, then you know we can possibly look at an expansion of the policy in the, in the future. Um, and so um, reporting is important. Uh, it's always been important to the original sponsors of the Investing in Opportunity Act. Uh, again, it's a priority for Senator Scott and Senator Booker, which is why we, we got it put back. And, you know, we, we, we think the stakeholder community uh, and, you know, definitely in the Opportunity Funds Association, all of our members, you know, see it as important because, again, we need we need to give Congress that tool to see uh, how effective the program is. And when do you expect we can see a vote on that bill? And do you expect it to pass? So, in, in, so I'll answer your second question first. You know, what, what, what we've seen is, in terms of the bipartisan support for things that involve opportunity zones, you know, we, we, we've really seen that, both in the original bill, uh, which again was a bipartisan bill, but even you know even in the hearings, um, you know from from the small business committee to the joint economic committee to what we've seen on the finance committee, you know you hear uh, folks on both sides of the aisle saying that this is a great tool in the toolbox of uh, of community development, and um, we also see evidence, legislative element evidence, in the fact that in the first uh, continuing resolution following tax reform, we were able to get bipartisan support for allowing Puerto Rico to uh, the territory of Puerto Rico to designate 100% of the distressed census tracts uh, on the island as opportunity zones. And this was partially in response to uh, some severe hurricanes that the island had, had just suffered. And so we saw folks come together in a bipartisan way to expand opportunity zones in a way that was beneficial for folks in a distressed area. And so um, when we look at something like reporting, which is something that's been a priority for Democrats and Republicans, um, we think the chances of it passing, if we can get a vehicle for it, are, are very high. 
um, and we have you know reason reason to be optimistic there. Um, and so it's really just a matter of there being uh, an appropriate vehicle that that kind of comes along for this to come come alongside of. And so you know from there, um, you know any anytime we're looking at a continuing resolution or a budget bill, uh, those are possibilities. If we look at you know a bill around that has a tax element, um, so if we do something along the lines of extenders or retirement, uh, then that obviously pre- presents a chance. If we, uh, you know, if we do something with infrastructure, you know, that, that presents a chance as well. So uh, it's really just a matter of finding the vehicle in terms of the timing. But in terms of, uh, of it passing, once we get the vehicle, I think that's very, uh, you know, very reasonable. Do you get a sense that there may be any vehicles coming down the pipeline pretty soon here, or do you have any sense of, of time frame? Uh, well, you know, we would hope, you know, looking at things in a broader way, uh, we would love to see something, see a vehicle uh, sooner rather than later. I would imagine that everything gets more difficult once we cross into the actual election year and and that 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 would apply to both you know the primary portion of the year um, as well as the general election portion of the year uh, only because you know with so many folks particularly in the senate running for president um, you know those folks are kind of running against each other uh, and each other's policies unfortunately and then ultimately you know one of those people will be running against the president. And so, um, so, so, so that can kind of chill the legislative process a little. So I think sooner rather than later would be great. I'd love to see something passed during this session of Congress, hopefully before the, uh, yeah. the, the, the holiday break at the end of the year, right? Sure. That'd um, be ideal. Yeah. As I mentioned earlier, you were not only involved with the legislative piece of the puzzle, but you're also involved with regulation, getting the Opportunity Zones regulated by Treasury. What efforts did you go through to make sure Treasury interpreted the statute in a manner that was consistent with congressional intent? And how involved were you with that part of the process? So, yes, so so, so, so that that was my, that that was really job one, uh, is making sure that the regulations associated with, with Opportunity Zones uh, come out one in a timely manner, but two, come out consistent with what the House and Senate voted for in tax reform. And so I was the you know the point person, obviously, on the congressional side, you know, for this process because you know Senator Scott was the point person in terms of um, you know in terms of on the member level. Uh, and so this is a critical process, but it's tricky. Because once the law is passed, Congress's official role is sort of finished there. And so you're really just working carefully and as closely as possible with Treasury to, to make sure that that each, you know, each sort of line within the provision is ultimately, uh, you know, ultimately turns into a proposed regulation, you know, that does what Congress voted for. And so the key there is to weigh in with Congress with the actual text of the provision in hand, 
uh, and say, look, this is where your interpretation is, you know, is not in line with congressional intent or inconvenient. And here's where, according to the statute, you know, we're, we're, we see is needing to make a correction. And that's critical because Treasury is is bound to that statutory language. Uh, so if you can't point to what you're what you're looking for from within that language, then you really uh, you really don't have a leg to stand on. And so, you know, that that process is critical. You know, there's a lot of back and forth and a lot of coordination with outside stakeholders. So there's key folks, you know, like the folks at the Economic Innovation Group who were really, um, you know, really critical in the conceptual phase around Opportunity Zones. Uh, and, and as they brought it to folks like uh, like Senator Scott uh, in those early phases, what they envisioned and what Senator Scott envisioned there at that phase what came out in the Investing in Opportunity Act and then what was ultimately passed in the Opportunity Zones provision. You know, you have to kind of coordinate all of those uh, stakeholders involved in all those different levels, communicate to Treasury, you know, in those terms. Uh, you know, there's Democratic members who did not vote for the actual tax reform provision, but who could be valuable in weighing in with Treasury in a bipartisan way, whether that be through letters, uh, whether that be through meetings, through phone calls, you know, to say, look, this is what we were looking at, and and this is what we consider to be a key priority now, um, in um, you know, in the interpretation uh, of, the, of these provisions. So, uh, yeah, so just a lot of coordinating members, a lot of coordinating other staffers, and. Uh, a lot, a lot of letter writing and uh, and phone calls with Treasury. Yeah, there was a letter that uh, several members of Congress addressed to Treasury. I believe it came, correct me if I'm wrong, I believe it came after the first tranche of guidance had been issued, but before yes. the second tranche of guidance had been issued. And getting them to speak with one voice, uh, you were a central player in that. Is that correct? Yes, absolutely. So, so you know, so one key thing there, and sort of uh, um, an example of why that's so critical is that you know we saw an IRS hearing, and you know it was literally a situation where you had five officials from the IRS, and you had about 21 speakers who came in and you know really spoke about that first tranche of regs. A lot of the comments sort of uh, also involved desired interpretations of what was coming in the second tranche of regs. And so of the 21 witnesses who spoke to that IRS panel, uh, and, and it, it, this is a, you know, a, an unprecedented IRS hearing. I mean, it was standing room only. The IRS employees literally had to give up their seats to allow for the folks who were, uh, who were still waiting in line outside uh, you know, you know, to get into this hearing room. And some people still got turned away, from what I understand. And, and many people still got turned away. Right. And so of the 21 speakers who weighed in with that panel, probably 15, you know, while I was still there, referenced the letter that we drafted, you know, again, with Democrats and Republicans from the House side, uh, Democrats and Republicans from the Senate side, who just laid out the priorities for this second tranche of regs. And that talked about things like, 
you know, looking at reporting, it talked about things like really making the environment conducive to investing in operating businesses. That was absolutely critical. Uh, and there were some provisions that, um, you know, that when we looked at when we when we looked at the proposed regs, the ultimate proposed regs in the second tranche, we could really see where that letter, um, you know, had effect in organizing those stakeholders. Yeah, and that was that was pretty powerful. And I think you got what you wanted out of that that second tranche of regulations. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I, what's what's your what's your take on the on the second tranche of regulations that that we received? A couple months ago now I, I think Treasury made a great start there uh, and so obviously you know the opportunity funds Association uh, will be weighing in you know with our comments on, on, on where we landed but I think overall Treasury made a great start in terms of making the uh, the policy conducive to operating businesses clarifying some of the some of the remaining issues that were out there for folks who are doing, going to be doing real estate investing you know and and and, and really um, asking for feedback on some important areas sort of like reporting and so yeah you know, we, we, we were uh, overall very pleased yeah when I spoke with Dan Kowalski over at the Treasury Department he indicated to me that you know they're tax policy experts. They're not social scientists, and they couldn't rewrite the statute, so they couldn't really provide or, or, or mandate the same level of reporting that I know that you probably are looking for, but I, I suspect, I get the sense that they're, that they're doing their best there, and they're, they're making a good attempt to at least listen to uh, different stakeholders, and I know they've recently submitted a request for information on that very topic as to how they can collect and report on on data. So I, I, I get the sense that in some way, somewhere al- along the way here, we're going to get some more clarity on on what type of data is going to be required from the Treasury Department with or without Senate Bill 1344 going through. Right. And, and you know, one of the things we, we were, uh, and we definitely, you know, agreed, you know, Treasury without, um, without congressional action and uh, and you know, more importantly, without you know, without voluntary action from uh, from fund managers, you know, Treasury had, d- does have those limitations of being their tax expert. And but you know, we, we, were, we were just glad to hear it in the conversation, right? Um, and you know, and, and to see uh, you know, Treasury request for comments followed up by by the legislative action from Congress. And, you know, getting that movement out there, if we can keep in the conversation, then we'll be in a good place. Right. So let's shift our conversation now. And I want to talk about the Opportunity Fund Association. Can you tell me a little bit about it? Who's on the team and what is your mission over there? Sure. So the Opportunity Fund Association is basically, uh, you know, an advocacy, education and communications organization. Uh, It's the, uh, the trade association for uh, opportunity fund managers. And, you know, it, it, it's, it's a vehicle that will allow opportunity fund managers to and investors to participate in public policy. So we're really looking at three, you know, three main areas. One will be, communi- will be communication. So we'll be communicating the industry's contributions 
two distressed rural and urban communities across the country. So that's going to be critical because we're already, uh, you know, our, our members are already putting shovels in the ground. They're already funding businesses. Uh, and so we want to make sure that we communicate those contributions um, out of the media to the public and we make sure we communicate it to folks on Capitol Hill and state legislatures. So we also want to make sure that we act as a standard setting organization for reporting and transparency in opportunity funds. And so, you know, as a trade association, that's a key, a key role. At the end of the day, we need to be able to point uh, members of Congress, folks in state legislatures, governors, and the rest of society to the to the tangible benefits that opportunity funds have created in distressed communities. And in order to do that, we need rigorous reporting. And so regardless of whether or not Senate Bill 1344 passes, our members are always going to adhere to rigorous reporting requirements and rigorous reporting framework just so that that information is available uh, both to Treasury and to the public. And so the final, the final aspect of the Opportunity Funds Association is advocacy. Uh, so we will be working with members uh, on Capitol Hill to educate them about Opportunity Zones, uh, educate them about the Opportunity Zone investments that are occurring in their districts, but then particularly working closely with members of the tax writing committee, so finance committee, the Senate side, and ways and means on our side to expand, preserve, and ultimately extend the Opportunity Zones provision. You know, right now, uh, after 10 years, uh, no more new investments uh, can be made in Opportunity Zones. And so what we want to do is really demonstrate with data and with the good, good work and stories that Opportunity Funds are doing in distressed communities, we want to be able to say, hey, look, there's an argument here to extend this for another 10 years or maybe even make it permanent. So those three areas, communications, transparency and reporting, and then finally, advocacy are, are, are the roles that the Opportunity Funds Association will play. That's great. And I would love for the program to get extended. I would imagine that the map would be redrawn every decade or so, perhaps. Um, I, the, the Opportunity Zones that were designated a while back by the different state governors and certified by Treasury are in effect through the end of 2028, I believe. So possibly that would mean that we would have to redraw the map every every 10 years or so. Is, is that right? Well, you get, yeah, and you got to understand, Jimmy, it's, we want to be redrawing that map, right? Right. We, we, we don't want the same 8,700 census tracts to be distressed in these rural and urban areas uh, after we've had the chance to draw capital into them. You know, we, we expect uh, currently distressed communities, that many of them, to not be distressed at the end of this, at, you know, not meet the criteria at the end of this uh, process. And so, yeah, we absolutely hope to be redrawing the maps, no question. Yeah, I'm with you there. It's, uh, it's the hope that 
these 8700 plus opportunity zones are no longer opportunity zones by right. 2028 right otherwise uh the program hasn't worked as as initially planned right so, which qualified opportunity funds have signed on as members so far with the with the opportunity funds association so 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 we're really proud of our charter member virtual partners out of arizona uh, so virtual partner ceo uh, is a woman named uh, Gwen palomino and they are really aggressively committed to social impact and so outside of opportunity zones you know they are about a three and a half billion dollar uh, real estate private equity fund and you know they are looking to do hundreds of millions of dollars of opportunity zone investing over the next 10 years and just are committed to impact in opportunity funds we had a, an opportunity to bring with Palomino to Capitol Hill uh, a couple weeks ago. And so she was meeting with some Congressional Black Caucus members who also serve on the Ways and Means Committee just to discuss some of her plans for impact in the areas where they invest, uh, some of her plans to guarantee that affordable housing is available in the, uh, in the zones where they invest, you know, in proportion to to what they invest, uh, you know, you know, to build out in the real estate space, and um, you know, we 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 had some some broad smiles after that. I think there were some real concerns uh, among some members of the Black Caucus. In fact, they sent a letter to Treasury, you know, to voice some of these concerns around making sure that 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 minorities gain in terms of jobs based on opportunity funds, uh, and then also making sure that that gentrification doesn't become a problem in the zones and in the zones where where these members districts sit. And so again, you know, with the ways and means members being the tax writers, we wanted to make sure we got our charter member uh, into town to speak with them. And uh, it was a great, great visit overall because the next day, Quinn was able to to spend time with my old boss, Senator Tim Scott and Treasury Secretary Mnuchin at a Minority Investor Summit. And so, um, and at that summit, really communicate with the Treasury Secretary the different ways in which federal agencies can facilitate opportunity zone investments uh, along along the lines of what uh, the White House has really uh, laid out as their intent. And so, uh, yes, so it was, it was great to have her up here. And they are a great partner as our charter member. Good. Yeah, I'm sure they are. They were one of the first, if not the first, to launch a qualified opportunity fund yeah. toward toward the beginning of 2018. They were they were one of the early adopters of the program, and they oh, uh, yeah. based in uh, Phoenix, Arizona, I believe. Is that right? Yes. And and so so we're all actually going to be out in Arizona next week uh, for groundbreaking on an opportunity zone project that Virtual Partners is is investing in and so we'll be out there uh, you know with the governor and uh and quinn again i'll be out there as well and again just celebrating and communicating the good work that uh that members like virtual are doing in opportunity zones so we're excited a little bit earlier we were talking about getting this program extended what work have you been doing to try to work toward that goal of extending this program so it 
works beyond 2028. Right. So, so what's key, what's key there is education. So educating members, educating the public, making sure that all stakeholders uh, understand really the potential that opportunity zones represent. You know, there's still going to be folks, uh, you know, governors are clear. There's still going to be folks on the local level across the country who are not fully, um, you know, not fully aware of the policy. And a lot of folks aren't aware of how they can utilize it. Uh, and so, you know, education is going to be key. Uh, but then also, again, transparency and reporting. People have to know what's happening in the zones. Uh, they have to know what the impact is in order to evaluate its extension. You know, that, that's quite natural. And we want to see more of these groundbreakings all over the country as well, I'm absolutely. sure, right? Yeah, absolutely. So a minute ago, we were talking about resident displacement. It, I, it's an issue that comes up on this podcast pretty frequently. You've mentioned that you've been involved with the Congressional Black Caucus, and they've expressed concerns of gentrification leading to resident displacement. What What are you doing specifically, and what is Virtua doing specifically to ensure that you're limiting resident displacement? Are there any specific strategies or tactics that you're you're doing? Sure. So th- there's there's a couple, you know, a couple things we can look at. You know, one, you know, it's important to note that there are 8,700 uh, census tracts total, and so you know, of, of these 8,700 census tracts, uh, gentrification is only really. Uh, you know, on trend or a possibility in a very small percentage. Uh, there's different estimates that up out there, but one estimate is, is that there's about 4% of the zones that are on a gentrification trend. And so we, we really need to concentrate on those when we're looking at the problem. I mean, there's areas, you know, the rural areas or, um, you know, certain parts of the country where there's really no amount of new capital that can come in and you know create any type of displacement, uh, so that that's important. But the small number of potential zones where gentrification could be a problem helps us because we can look closely and look at all of the tools that are in our toolbox. So the you know the one obvious tool you have is you know local zoning, and so you know the local governments have. Uh, a lot of sway in what gets built, uh, what doesn't get built, and the the trajectory of um, of development. Um, you know, we've also been encouraging local action that helps create affordable housing and job training. So those are key things. But so when you look at uh, areas like D.C., the mayor of D.C. has designated twenty five million dollars for affordable housing and job training in the two most distressed wards in D.C., which, you know, uh, comprise about uh, 17 out of the 25 opportunity zones in the city. The the governor of Baltimore has has similarly designated $56 million to uh, affordable housing and job training. So, again, if we see, you know, growth in the affordable housing stock, 
and and we also see folks being trained to potentially take on the jobs that are associated with the new economic activity in the zones, uh, then we can see that as as a bulwark against uh, gentrification. Another thing with our members, you know, we're encouraging uh, members to partner with credible local developers when you're talking about real estate. Because again, you know, one of the good things about operating business investment is that it's less likely to contribute to any gentrification trend there. But, you know, when you really talk about gentrification problems, potentially you're talking about real estate. And so uh, on real estate projects, we encourage people to partner with credible existing uh, local developers, you know, who understand the process, understand the zoning, understand the neighborhoods, understand people, and can help make sure that the capital comes in in ways it does not displace uh, existing residents. So that's our partners program. Uh, and then folks like Virtual, I mean, they, they, they have very extensive internal policies that help to make sure that they come into the area, they come into the zone as a beneficiary. So even the way they manage their employee programs and the people that they hire into the different uh, hotels that they build, their human resources structure is designed so that somebody can start off at the front desk and end up in management. And I would love to actually have um, our charter members, CEO, Quinn, on your podcast so she could explain the details. But it's absolutely, absolutely amazing. And then even in the way they construct the hotels, um, you know, we can estimate the amount of potential low housing displacement that building a luxury hotel uh, would create. And then Virtua actually builds uh, affordable housing alongside to make up for any displacement there and in that housing stock. And so just, just, just really amazing stuff that we're seeing as member-initiated uh, efforts to curtail any potential gentrification. Oh, that's great. That's great to hear. And yeah, let this serve as an official invitation to Quinn to come on the podcast Absolutely. if she wants to. I'd love to speak with her more about this. Yeah, uh, no, she, she, is, she is amazing, has an amazing story. And so, you know, you're going to love having her on and I will pass the invitation on. Good. Yes, please do. Uh, before we go, I want to give you one last chance to plead your case here, Shay. In, in your view, why is reporting such a critical critical element of this program and why is it so crucial that we get this right from the get-go oh uh, it's it's critical because you know there's no question that there's going to be tens you know possibly as much as a hundred billion dollars according to the treasury secretary that comes into distressed neighborhoods over these next 10 years you know, so there's no question that tens of billions of dollars are coming in at least. That That's not the problem. The policy in itself guarantees that. Uh, what's critical, what's critical is that as this capital changes the lives of existing residents in these distressed communities, in these distressed rural and urban areas, it's useless if we can't show Congress what's happening. So if we can't tell the story 
in numbers to Congress, we have no chance of getting this great provision extended. And that's the ultimate hope here, right? We want this program to go for a very long time. If we can get it extended, sure. all the better. I mean, if if it were if I if I could wave if I could wave a wand, a magic wand, then you know not only would we extend it, but we would allow governors to designate more than twenty five percent of the zones. I mean, you know, we, we we would want every distressed community to be able to potentially benefit from this in a perfect world. So so, so there's there there's a number of rational, you know, expansions of this policy and uh, and, I, and obviously the extension of the policy um, that would make sense, but you have to be able to show you have to be able to show in numbers um, the good work you're doing. And if you can't do that, then then, then it's just a collection of stories uh, which won't be enough. You know, and, and, and what's key is that our members you know, are committed to having that data available, whether Congress mandates it or not, uh, because they are going to be doing great work uh, and are today doing great work in Opportunity Zones. And we're going to be able to tell that story and we're going to be able to tell that story numerically. In God we trust, but all others show me the data. Am I right? <laughs> right. There you go. There you go. Well, tell us uh, where we can go to learn more about you and the Opportunity Funds Association before we go. Sure, and if and if sure. I have if I have a qualified Opportunity Fund, how can I join? Absolutely. So you know, so you can reach out to us. You know, our website is zonefunds.org. Z-O-N-E-F-U-N-D-S dot O-R-G. Uh, and so you can go there and you can learn about uh, a little bit more about my background and the rest of our team. Uh, we've got a, a great group of people brought here together to communicate and advocate and to set up our reporting framework for members. Uh, and so you can directly email us at info at zonefunds.org, uh, and we'll reach out to you and, and, and get, get members signed up, invite folks to apply. Uh, and if a member, a potential member, is in line with our priorities around uh, how we behave in the zone and, and zones and then um, and the commitment to transparency reporting and we'd love to have people sign up that's great well for more, our list the more the merrier jimmy the more the merrier the more the merrier of course so for our listeners out there i'll have show notes on the opportunity zones database website for this particular episode you can head to opportunitydb.com slash podcast to find those show notes on today's episode with shay hawkins and You'll find links to all the resources that Shay and I discussed on today's show. I'll have links to zonefunds.org. You can find out more about Virtua Capital, Senate Bill 1344, and all of the other resources that Shay and I discussed today. Again, that's at opportunitydb.com slash podcast. Shay, this has been awesome. Thanks for your time. I, I really appreciate you coming on and joining us today and sharing your story with us. Well, thanks, Jimmy. I appreciate you having me on. I appreciate the... Uh chance to get on here and, and, and really discuss not only this great policy and opportunity zones, but, you know, a great uh, association uh, with great members that's set up to advance them uh, and make sure that, that we get a chance to get this policy extended. Absolutely. I wish you luck. Thank you. All right. Thanks, Jimmy. That's it for our show today. A huge thank you to you, our listener. 
If you liked this episode, please rate and review us on iTunes. The Opportunity Zones podcast is produced by the Opportunity Database. Visit OpportunityDB.com to learn more about Opportunity Zones and Opportunity Zone Fund investing. You can learn how to subscribe to this podcast and read more about today's guest in the show notes by visiting OpportunityDB.com slash podcast. And we'll be back soon with another episode.